Please turn with me to Mark chapter 3. As we continue our series in Mark this morning. Mark chapter 3 beginning in verse 7. Let me read this passage for us. Verses 7 through 19. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called uh, to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, that he might send them out to preach, and to have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James and John, uh, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Let's pray. Jesus, uh, you have appointed these 12 men to be your disciples and your apostles. And upon that foundation, you have built your church. It's the very foundation that we now rest upon 2,000 years later. Thank you for your unending faithfulness to your people. Bless us uh, now as we consider your word together. It's in your holy name that we pray. Amen. Well, when you head out of the parking lot later today, if you're to hang a right, my left, your right, on the main street, if you're to head north, you'd be heading into downtown Joplin. And as you'd be heading into downtown, you'd be passing and driving by a lot of old buildings. Now, this building that we're in, I I believe, is about 100 years old. I think it was first or finished construction in uh, 1924. Uh, and uh, now we're getting ready for it to be 100 years old. So this building is very old itself. There's buildings that are a lot older than it here in Joplin as you drive there north. A lot of buildings. A lot of buildings that have seen better days. And there are many organizations in Joplin that are working now to revitalize that downtown area. Uh, A lot of uh, contractors have, have been working on renovations for a lot of old buildings like the Pearl Brothers building there uh, and many others like it. Uh, Even if you were to go all the way north, uh, past First Street, you'd see the old uh, Joplin Union Depot, that they're accepting plans for renovation of what to do with that building. But it's it's dilapidated, it's broken down, it's it's been run down, it's been neglected. And that's the natural course of things. The natural course of things is toward decay, it's toward misuse and disuse. That's the sad reality. Whether it be buildings, whether it be cities, nations, peoples, whatever it is, our bodies tend to decay, 
our cities, our nations tend to decay. And if that's true physically, how much more is it true spiritually? That's the sad reality of the spiritual lives of God's people, is that they can become worn out and run down by lack of use, by lack of care. Just like the Union Depot here north of town. And that's exactly what we see in our text this morning. Like a worn down and neglected building, God's people in Israel, they have become spiritually decayed. They have been left in ruins. But what Jesus does is he comes, bringing with him the kingdom of God, and he makes plans to rebuild this people that has been worn down. That's what he does when he calls his disciples. This is the big picture that we see in this passage. This passage, these two sections, they're, uh, they, they're summarizing uh, in a lot of ways. They can be often quickly overlooked, but we need to see the bigger picture here. And we can summarize the bigger picture like this, that Jesus appoints the twelve to rebuild his people. That's what's happening here. Jesus is calling and he's appointing a new twelve, his twelve disciples, to bring the good news out into the old twelve, as it were, into the people of Israel, the old twelve tribes of Israel, to go out and to rebuild what has been broken. As we consider this passage, we'll have, we'll have many things to say about the people, we'll have many things to say about the disciples, but we don't want to miss the larger point of this section in Mark's gospel, the reason why he has these 12 apostles listed here in the first place. And that's because Jesus appointed these 12 to rebuild his people. In order to see this, let's look at both of these sections. First, we'll consider the spiritual state of Israel. That is the, the old 12, if you will. The people as they are, as we find them here in our passage, the spiritual state of the people in verses 7 through 12. Then we'll consider and we'll look at the new 12, the disciples that Jesus calls, as he calls them to begin his work of rebuilding. And so first, the old 12, the people of Israel. At this point in Mark's gospel, Jesus has been confronted by the scribes and the Pharisees. Uh, several times we've seen tensions have been rising as Jesus, he's rebuked their misunderstandings. He's rebuked their traditions around fasting, their traditions around the Sabbath. He's, he's healed people on the Sabbath. He's forgiven sins that only God is able to do, making himself equal to God. He's turned upside down all of their own senses of of personal holiness, all their own uh, hypocrisy. He's, he's laid it bare for them. But we're still just in the beginning section of Mark's gospel, Jesus' ministry here in Galilee. So tensions are going to continue to rise. And what we have here in verses 7 through 12 is a summary of, uh, to the point now that we're at, of Jesus' ministry here in Galilee. And we're told that Jesus, he withdrew with his disciples uh, to the sea. That is the Sea of Galilee. And a great crowd followed Jesus. He had a home base uh, there in Capernaum. And now he's walking along the sea, along the north side of the sea here. And his ministry was really taking off. 
a massive crowd, a great crowd followed him out to the sea to the point that Jesus tells his disciples to have a boat ready for him so he could get into the boat and they could push off into the water a little bit just so that there'd be a natural barrier between him and the great crowd that's following him. That was so adamant on getting close to Jesus that uh, he was in danger of being crushed by the crowd, verse 9 tells us. So there's this massive crowd of people. But notice where they're coming from. You know, Mark lists these locations for us, and it's easy for us to, to read over them, but I want us to read these again. I don't know if anybody here loves geography. I don't know if any of the kids here are big geography. Uh, I'll do a little scan here. Any, any kids here big fan of geography class? We got one. All right. Well, Evelyn, you're going to love this part of the sermon, all right? But if you have your Bibles, and parents, if you have your Bibles, in the back of those Bibles, there's usually a lot of maps, and I encourage you to go look back there as we consider some of these place names. And if you don't have one of those Bibles, you don't have that map, usually there's a map that is, you know, the land during the time of Jesus. You can go online after the service. I encourage you to do that. You can go to esv.org. That's our uh, translation that we use. All the maps that they have in the Bibles, those are available online for free as well. But consider uh, these maps and consider these place names. If you were to look at the map of, of the land during the time of Jesus and look at these locations, you'll see that these locations make up what was originally the, the land given to the 12 tribes of Israel. That's what you'll see. So first we have Galilee there in the north. Galilee right there by the Sea of Galilee. That's where Mark uh, first lists for us, and that's where Jesus was doing most of his ministry. But then he says that people are also coming from Judea and Jerusalem. Judea being the Greek word for the Hebrew word Judah, and so this territory where Judah was first, that, that territory of Judah given to him, that's where the people are coming from, from Judea, including the city of Jerusalem right there. The people are also coming to Jesus from Idumea. Now, Idumea, you'll find, is directly south of Judea. And during the time of the exiles, the people were sent out of the land. The people of Edom, the Edomites, they moved in. And they moved into part of that por southern portion of Judah. And so in the Greek-speaking world, that land came to be known as Idumea, the land of the Edomites. So the people were coming from all these locations, north to south, to see Jesus. Not only that, but they were coming from beyond the Jordan as well, from the east side of Jordan. Three of the twelve tribes of Israel, Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh, were given land allotments on the east side, on that other side of the Jordan River. At Jesus' time, this land was referred to in Greek as Perea, which literally means on the other side. So people were coming from there to see Jesus. And not only that, not only from the other side of the Jordan, but also along the coast of the Mediterranean, all the way north to Tyre and even up to Sidon, people were coming down to see Jesus. So from the farthest south all the way to the very edges of the top uppermost portion of the land of Israel, of the 12 tribes, even on the other side of the Jordan, everybody was coming to see Jesus. These are all cities, these are all locations that at one point in time made up the nation of Israel. 
That's what Mark wants us to see. But there's only one problem. Much like the broken down buildings that we could drive by in downtown, the people of Israel that had once made up these 12 tribes, they're spiritually broken and they're destitute. They're in spiritual shambles and they're run down. And their spiritual decay is clearly seen in many ways. I mentioned one already, and that's the situation of the scribes and the Pharisees. If you were to look one verse up in, in chapter 3, verse 6, now we're told that the Pharisees had gone out and started teaming up with the Herodians, these arch enemies, these ultra-conservative uh, Jewish uh, Pharisees teaming up with, with those loyal to Herod and to Rome. They, de- they despised each other. Yet now they're working together to stop Jesus. The spiritual situation in Israel is so bleak because in the first place, these religious leaders, these are the religious leaders of the people, they have completely forsaken and rejected their Messiah. They have turned their back on God, the same God whom they profess to serve. We also see the spiritual decline of the people within the people themselves. We are told that this incredibly huge crowd from all over, all the locations we've talked about, they're coming to follow Jesus, to seek after Jesus. But for what reason? Why are they seeking after Jesus? Mark tells us that they were coming because Jesus had healed many. So in verse 10 they say that they were crowding around trying to touch Jesus so that they might receive some of that healing too. They're coming to try to get something from Jesus. Jesus was happy to heal. Jesus was full of compassion for those who were in need. But that was not his true purpose. That was not the true purpose of his ministry. After his first major healing in Capernaum back in chapter 1, his disciples, they thought that they were going to start a healing ministry. And they said, Jesus, we're ready. Let's get this thing going. But Jesus rebukes them. He corrects them and he says in chapter 1, verse 38, he says, let us go out to the next towns so that I may not heal necessarily, but he says that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. It was not in order to bring about physical healing, though Jesus was willing and able to do that. It was for a deeper need that the people had of spiritual healing. The healing that can only be brought through repentance of sin and faith in the gospel. That is the purpose for why Jesus went out in his ministry. But the people in our text this morning, they didn't care for that message. But they wanted the physical benefit that Jesus could bring. They didn't want the faith and life of repentance that Jesus was preaching. They wanted to get something from him. And when churches, when peoples, when nations, whoever it might be, when we lose sight of Jesus for who he is, and instead we seek Jesus for what we think he can do for us, that is a sure sign of our spiritual decay. This is what we see that the state of the people of Israel are in. Thirdly, we also see this desperate state Uh, with the demons who likewise are among the crowd and they're crying out to God uh, and they're crying in an attempt to destroy and discredit Jesus' ministry. Why does Jesus order them to be silent? 
Why does he rebuke them? Aren't they saying something that's true? Aren't they correctly uh, confessing and professing that Jesus, he is the Son of God? And he certainly is that. That certainly is true. But Jesus silences them because their confession is not made with a faithful heart. They're not making a profession of their faith in Christ, but it's a desperate attempt to derail. It's a desperate attempt to bring havoc upon Jesus' ministry. They wanted his ministry to fail. They had no affections for Jesus. Perhaps they thought that by making his true identity known to the people, they could disrupt his plan and his ministry in some way. But Jesus will do his ministry on his terms. And he does so. He silences the demons. But we get this uh, big picture painted for us here. This bleak picture of the spiritual state uh, of the people. They're run down like a worn out building. Their groups are, are full of demons. The people themselves, they have no desire for Jesus, for the message he brings. Only what they think they can receive from him. And their relig- religious leaders themselves, they, they outright hate Jesus. They want to see him destroyed. They want to see him put to death. They have no regard for him whatsoever. In every possible way, this situation feels hopeless. Such is the state of God's people here, and such is the state of all of God's people. If it were not for his grace, we live in a world, a fallen world, full of sin, it's full of death, it's full of spiritual decay. But thanks be to God that in Christ Jesus, He has begun the work of rebuilding and He continues to do the work of rebuilding and He will bring His work to completion on that day. And this is what we see in this next section as Jesus calls the twelve disciples. We see the beginning of this rebuilding process. We are told in verse 13... That Jesus went up on the mountain, and that's where he called his 12 disciples to be the ones who would rebuild the 12 tribes of Israel. That is to say, they were going to begin the work through Christ of rebuilding his people. But how do we know this? How can we make this connection between the 12 disciples and the, the 12 tribes of Israel? And what is so fascinating is we see that Jesus is mirroring exactly what happened when the 12, tri- uh, 12 tribes were first made God's people as they entered into covenant with God there on Mount Sinai when Moses went up to the mountain with the leaders of the 12 tribes. We read a section of that in uh, Exodus 19 this morning and that section continues in Exodus at the, the foot of Mount Sinai but we also read in chapter 24 of Exodus that Moses he goes up again with the representative leaders of the 12 tribes and there a covenant is made and confirmed between God and his people. Exodus 24 verses 7 and 8 says then he took the book of the covenant And read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood, and he threw it on the people, and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. 
And now, generations later, the new and better Moses, the one and only mediator between God and man, he ascends the mountain and he calls to himself his 12 disciples in whom he will entrust like he did with Moses in the Old Covenant, he will entrust them with the blessings of the New Covenant made not with the blood of bulls and goats, but made with the precious blood of Christ himself. These apostles are then entrusted with laying the foundation of Jesus' people, laying the foundation of his church. They're the ones who will be sprinkling the blood of the New Covenant, as it were, on the people as they minister to their needs, as they preach the gospel to them of forgiveness of sins, as they administer the sacrament in his name to them. This is what's happening here. This is the bigger picture that we cannot miss. That Jesus, he is the true Moses, he is the mediator of his people, and he is beginning now to make all things new. And that's why he appoints the twelve. So that he can begin the work of rebuilding his people. There's so much that we could say about these twelve, about them individually, about why they were called. But Mark, he, he uh, lists uh, three reasons, all of which they point back to this main reason of, of Jesus calling and appointing these disciples to rebuild his people. But he gives three specific uh, so that's that we can follow in the text. And the first one is there in verse 14. It says that he appointed them so that, so that they might be with him. Jesus appointed the disciples for fellowship, for companionship. So they might always be with Jesus, that they might be learning from his feet, so that Jesus might have that companionship himself. Jesus is a true, full human being, and we know that humans, that we were created for companionship. And Jesus appoints and calls these men to be with him. This is the remarkable, this is an amazing, beautiful truth of our Christian faith, of our religion, is that we do not worship some impersonal and aloof God somewhere, but we worship and we serve and we have companionship with a personal, a very real, loving friend of sinners. Jesus Christ himself. He wants to be with you, dear Christian. He wants to be with you so much so that he shed his own blood for you. God sent his own son that he might redeem you and ransom you and bring you out of that kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God, the kingdom of light that he has gone out and and is preaching. He appoints the disciples to go out and to preach that message as well. We know Jesus, he, he could have accomplished this mission and this ministry on his own if he wanted to, but he chose to do ministry among a band of brothers, and unlikely brothers at that. We've met some of these men in this list already. Uh, we know Peter and Andrew and James and John, that they were fishermen. Uh, we know that Matthew in this list, he's the tax collector, also goes by Levi, that was called uh, earlier in, in Mark's gospel. We see other names that show up here for the first time. Uh, like James, the son of Alphaeus, or Simon, who's uh, listed here as the zealot. And it's possible that he was a member of this, uh, this anti-Roman political group that wanted to overthrow Roman rule. 
It's very possible he was a part of that. So among this group then, there's a mix of white collar and blue collar, a mix of government bureaucrats and anti-government freedom fighters. And they're all called together to do ministry together, to be companions and brothers. And I love this microcosm in the text here of what the church is. And we can look out in this group, and we have people from all kinds of different walks of life, different socioeconomic levels, different backgrounds, different histories. And under different circumstances, if it weren't for the church, I don't know if there'd be many social or any other kind of reasons why we might be getting together. But there's one reason. It's because we've been saved by the blood of Christ. And that is an unbreakable tie that binds us together. That we have fellowship with one another as we have fellowship in Christ. So the disciples are called for companionship in the first place. They're also called uh, so that they would go out and preach. This was their apostolic mission to go and preach the good news of the gospel of God. This was the work that they were to undertake in the work of rebuilding God's people, to go proclaim to them that there is a new kingdom. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This mission, it began during Jesus' earthly ministry. We see how they go out, and we'll see later in chapter 6 how Jesus sends them out to begin this work of preaching. But this work would begin in earnest. It would begin uh, uh, much more uh, as Jesus ascends into heaven and he sends his spirit and they go out into all the world. We see this connection clearly made. Jesus makes this command. He leaves the disciples with this, this spiritual mission. Acts chapter 1 verse 8. Jesus tells them that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We see the connection here in all the places, beginning at that central focus and then working its way out into the ends of the earth. Jesus is sending his disciples to rebuild his people. Paul summarizes the foundational ministry of the apostles. Uh, he summarizes this in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20, where he says that God's people, they're now being built up into the household of God. Uh, Paul says, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. That's you and me. We are being built day by day with the foundation that the apostles themselves laid. These 12 that Jesus sent out, they laid the foundation. And now the church is being built upon it. And for 2,000 years it has been being built and it continues to be built today as God works in your hearts and my hearts as he unites us to himself and unites us to one another. From broken down and abandoned, spiritually distraught buildings like you and me, he's doing the work of renovation. He's doing the work of rebuilding. He's building us into a new temple, into a new household of God. And finally, verse 15 tells us that they were also sent out and called to have authority and power over the demons. 
We don't need to overthink this point. Simply put, it means that they were sent out not powerless, but with power. Christ was with them. There was nothing that was going to prevent their work of rebuilding his people. They were sent out in power and authority over all the forces of darkness. Jesus was going to build his church. Jesus is going. He will rebuild and restore his spiritually lost people. The forces of evil, they have no power. There's great confidence in this. There's no power that they have that could prevail against Christ and his mission, against his apostles that have been sent, that will prevail ever against his church. Not in this life, certainly not in the life to come. Jesus, he appointed the twelve to go out and to rebuild his people. So where does that leave us this morning? Like we mentioned, we're here now resting on that foundation that has been laid. And we are reminded that Jesus, he is actively working in our lives. This is the good news of the gospel. If you're looking at your life and you think, wow, my life, it really does spiritually, it resembles those broken down and and neglected and abandoned buildings. That's what I feel like. I'm a lot like that broken down building on Main Street. My life is a mess. I feel worthless. Whatever you might be going through, Christ is the one who can make you whole again. He can rebuild and He can restore whatever it it is in your life that might have been broken down by sin, by something that you've done, by something that's been done to you. Whatever it might be, Christ is able to take that. The master with these tools in his hand, he can make that and he can reshape, he can fix, he can restore, whatever it might be. He will and does rebuild his people. That includes you, that includes me. That includes all who have put their faith in Christ. So put your faith in Christ this morning. Rest in Him. He is the one worthy of all of our praise. He will rebuild His people. Let's pray to Him now. Let's pray together. Jesus, You have come to redeem and restore Your people. And You have. You have rebuilt us upon the foundation of the apostles, Yourself being the cornerstone. Please, Lord Jesus, give us the faith uh, to believe it. Give us the eyes to see, uh, to see how in your perfect uh, redemptive plan you have been working in us even now to rebuild and to restore us. We all face brokenness in our lives. We would be lost and destitute without you. Yet, Lord Jesus, you are the God of, of those messes. You are the God that loves to come and be with your people to dine with us, to eat with us, to serve us, to minister to all of our needs. So please, I pray for those here this morning uh, who are weighed down heavy by the burden of sin, that you would be uh, their Lord and their shepherd and their friend this morning, that you would minister to their needs, that you would remind them, that you would uh, encourage them, strengthen their faith to know that you have been working in their lives, And you are faithful. You're the one who's begun the work and you are the one who is faithful to complete that work when you come again. Come, Lord Jesus, that is our prayer. Come quickly.
It's in your holy name that we pray. Amen.